0: And welcome to CSAP's Science and Policy Podcast. I'm Rob Doubleday, and this series on science advice and government is in partnership with the research project Expertise Under Pressure, which is part of the Centre for Humanities and Social Change at Cambridge. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about SAGE and its use in 2014 with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And we particularly talked about the different disciplines that were needed to understand the nature of the problem and how it could be addressed. Today, we're going to talk about an incident when SAGE was called again, and this was in April 2015, two days after an earthquake in Nepal, which took place on the 25th of April 2015. And we're joined today by James Jackson, who's a professor in earth sciences at Cambridge. He's an earthquake geologist. And Professor Emily So, who is an architectural engineer, both of whom have worked on earthquakes, what causes them, and what damage they do. And so I want to cast your mind back, Emily, if I may, to April 2015. The earthquake was reported on the 25th of April, and SAGE took place two days later. How did you get involved?
1: Thanks, Rob. Um, I was basically emailed by the Government Office of Science calling for a meeting, as you say, a couple of days after the earthquake and responded by saying that I'll attend. And with that, a group was convened by the Government Office of Science and 15 people were on the call uh, to offer their advice and input to the earthquake.
0: Do you know why you were called? What sort of expertise did you have? And, and do you know how the Government Office for Science uh, came across you?
1: Prior to returning to Cambridge as a lecturer, I worked with the U.S. Geological Survey um, out in Colorado, and we worked together on something called PAGER, which is a real-time estimation system that um, disseminates information on the likely fatalities and uh, likely economic impact of earthquakes anywhere around the world. And so, because I'd worked on PAGE and my research area was on casualty estimation from earthquakes, I was called in to offer my advice on what um, could be the impact of this earthquake on people on the ground. And I'm guessing my name might have been um, suggested by my colleagues at the BGS and the British Geological Survey and people I've worked with in, in academia.
0: So prior to getting that call, you had not had much experience of offering your advice to the UK government, is, is that right?
1: Uh, no, not at all. So prior to this, I was working as I said, with the US Geological Survey and I had offered media uh, interviews and been um, interviewed by the New York Times and the likes after the Tohoku event in 2011. But for the UK government, this was the first time um, I partaked in a, a SAGE uh, meeting.
0: And, and what, so what was, what was it like, and, and how did you feel you were able to, to contribute?
1: Uh, to be honest with you, I thought it was actually quite nerve-wracking. It was called very quickly. We didn't know what was being passed on to COBRA, uh, the cabinet office uh, briefing room. And the meeting happened at 3 o'clock on the 27th of April, so two days after the event. And in the, uh, they were asking for information uh, for 10 a.m. the next day. So models, do we run? Um, imperfect information, things on the ground that we were getting only moments before to be analysed and estimates to be made on what the likely mortality would be on the ground.
0: So what was it actually like, the meeting? So Mark Walport chaired it, who was the Government Chief Scientific Advisor at the time, and, and the, the, the minutes are in the public domain, so anyone can see the minutes, but what did it actually feel like at the time?
1: There were a few things that were after, mainly the the actual event as what damage could be incurred from it. So the BGS really took a a, a very uh, big part in the British Geological Survey in chairing that and providing the evidence um, from their uh, contacts in Nepal, as well as um, from the global network, USGS, the uh, US team were heavily involved. And they really wanted us to comment on what was already being fed to the government office of science in terms of estimates, and Philip England and James Jackson were also involved in providing information on the likely scenario relating to future earthquakes and aftershocks as well.
0: And so, what was the main the main issue that, that people were worrying about at the time?
1: It's and twofold. The first is what, what, how much humanitarian aid um, should be would be required by the Nepalese government, and whether. The UK having a very good relationship with the Nepalese government would be needed to provide assistance and therefore to have time to plan for that so that it can be mobilised as soon as possible. And the second is that we uh, there are a lot of British nationals out there and we differed and the uh, Foreign Office were particularly concerned about their safety and, and to ensure that we have adequate uh, information to help them as well.
0: So did this meeting happen, did you say, on the call or was it in person?
1: It was mostly people dialed in because it was held in London and we literally were contacted that morning. So the meeting was at three o'clock and we contacted in the morning and I replied that I would be available online. And, and, and that's how this group of 10 to 15 people gathered. And they already had some information that was fed through from the British Geological Survey and other academics. But really the, the, the discussion was centered around what was the likely impact of the earthquake in terms of deaths, injuries, and the displaced, and the likely damage in terms of infrastructure and buildings as well?
0: So, I mean, that was quite close to your research expertise, wasn't it? Assessing on you know the damage that earthquakes do, but obviously, as you say, it's happening sort of in real time with with, with sketchy data. Did did you feel? I mean, how confident were you in in the assessments you were able to to give at that time?
1: To be honest, I. I don't think anybody was very confident in the the, the actual uh, percentage of fatalities and things that they were asking, be, simply because we didn't have very good data on the population exposure. So we knew the buildings were vulnerable, the, 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 especially the unreinforced masonry buildings, buildings that had been engineered. And there are plenty of those in the country. But what we were not confident about were where the people were at the time of the event. And... Also, because it was um, 80 kilometers outside of Kathmandu, the capital, and is in a mountainous area, the problems were landslides complicating the, the rescue efforts, but also blocking um, infrastructure and perhaps even wiping out entire populations like it did in One China and China in 2008 was, were all possible. And there was just not knowing, really not having that information because we are not locals and we don't know the terrain and the... The actual um, exposure of people um, very well it was really the the, the bottleneck of, of the estimates, really.
0: So, Sage only met once in, in this instance, didn't it? I mean, did, did you, what was your kind of feeling after the end of the process? Did, did you feel, you said you were sort of, there were questions about the error bars, if you like, on the kind of assessments you were able to give, you know, did, did you feel that under the circumstances that this was, you know, a good operation of a system to marshal relevant expertise in very short time timeframes? What's your reflection on how, how the process worked?
1: We only met once as a group on a call, but I was contacted a couple of times after that just for informational updates on what I thought were the projections of deaths and injuries before the COBRA meetings took place. So I was contacted again by the Government Office of Science and John Riesel, also uh, the head of BGS at the time, also on those emails. And so there were some follow-up, but actually what was the end of the communications when six days later, when they stopped any kind of questions of the group and that was it. So, In some ways, I was lucky that the estimates that we gave were in the ballpark of what happened. So around 9,000 people died and our estimate was um, 10,000 to uh, 30,000 as as a kind of worst case scenario. So in that sense, the the estimates or the the information I was providing was in in the right ballpark, but at the same time, it could have gone either way because a landslide could have happened and entire populations and schools might have been damaged.
0: Is had, had that experience kind of influenced work you've done since, or, or is it just been a sort of an episode that is sort of part of a much richer sort of set of research and engagement that you've had as, as you know, part of an ongoing research interests in the damage that earthquakes do? Or, or had, had have you learned anything from that experience that shaped your research since?
1: I think it's definitely focused my mind on being more proactive in gathering local information. The unknowns and the anxiety of providing information in this scenario was really to do with the fact that we didn't have the exposure data. Actually, one of the things we did say during the call was that the timing of the earthquake probably saved a lot of lives because it happened at noon on a Saturday when children were not in schools and people were out in the rural areas, they were out in the field working. So even though the the houses were damaged, they themselves were not uh, injured or killed. So I think there was a lot to be learned from the exercise. But, you know, more so in terms of my research, I I have um, stressed on getting more information from the local um, regions, Pakistan, India, Nepal, and this a network of engineers who are trying to do that, standardize the information and, and gather more information from our colleagues yeah. all over the world.
0: Thanks, Emily. That's such a great firsthand account of, of what it's like as somebody fairly fresh and new to these kinds of advisory processes getting called in and what it what it feels like. I think what I'd like to turn the conversation to now with you, Emily, and, and bringing in James, is, is not just so much the processes by which expertise are brought in when there's a crisis or an emergency, but really, you know, what are the expertise that can be drawn on? And how are those networks built up over time that can then be called on at moments, such as the one we've been talking about. So I'd like to turn to you, James, if I may. You were able to contribute to this discussion. You weren't part of that SAGE process. And I know you were saying that you'd been in Kathmandu just three weeks before, but maybe you could take a step back and tell us how how you had started to get involved in, in the conversations that led to your involvement in this.
2: Yeah, there's a a couple of bits of background which I think are important. One is I hadn't really... I've, I've been part of a group throughout my career. I've worked in the Great Earthquake Belt, which runs from the Mediterranean through to China. Over the course of several decades... We've worked, really, with all the earthquake countries between Italy and China, east-west and Mongolia and India, north-south, working on these earthquakes. But we hadn't had much to do with the British government because the British government, on the whole, is not very concerned with those things in those countries. Nepal was different, and just by pure chance, about two three months before the Nepal earthquake, a completely separate contact altogether, put me in touch with Chris Whitty, who at that stage was the scientific advisor for DFID, because the UK government did have a different view about Nepal. They felt a particular responsibility to Nepal for all sorts of reasons of history which are well understood, and they were particularly interested about that. So I had quite a long conversation with him about what the vulnerability was in Nepal and there's no controversy about this really I mean Kathmandu has had lots and lots of earthquakes in the past the last really big one was 1934 and before that 1833 and so it goes back in time it's not a theoretical threat people really know about this and those big earthquakes occur all the way along the Himalaya and we know quite a lot about the what's actually happened so I was talking to him about this and and that was all fine and the other thing part of the background which matters is that about 2012 we had put together a particular project to bring together the countries right across that belt to talk to each other about what science could do to try and reduce the risk to humans to increase human safety if you like very specific kind of project it was something we'd actually been doing anyway for a long time beforehand. But the project happened because at that time the research councils were being urged by government to get involved in improving the quality of life and public health and all these kinds of things, as well as doing science. And it was quite easy for us to do that, and so we got involved with doing that. And again, by chance, we happened to have a meeting of that consortium in Kathmandu three weeks before the earthquake. And we were there and we had, I, I, we, it was actually a, a project run by us involving other universities in the UK, our colleagues in places like Oxford and Leeds, Leeds had also worked in these countries. And we were in Kathmandu and we had brought to Kathmandu people from China, uh, India, Kazakhstan, Iran, all other places in there to share the expertise. This was a group of scientists, an active scientists, not really heads of institutes or anything like that. These were the people we talked to every day about science together to come and talk about this business in Nepal. And that's where we were in, in Kathmandu, talking about this. And partly we were talking to some of the public officials in Kathmandu, responsible for public safety and so on, who were listening to all this. And a large part of it actually was really reinforcing our Nepalese colleagues who knew perfectly well what was going on. But them talking to their Nepalese politicians with a bunch of foreign people nodding their heads in the background just kind of gave confidence to what was going on. So that the the Nepalese officials knew that what what they were getting from their Nepalese scientists was not some exotic view of the world which wasn't shared by the international community. It was simply the state of the art, what was going on. So we'd had this meeting, and, um, and then we got back home from the meeting and the earthquake happened, and I was immediately in touch with Chris Whitty because we'd already just by pure luck, had that contact beforehand. We were able to immediately talk about what was going on. And again, from his point of view, what I was able to say, which was reassuring for him, is within a few days, half a dozen groups around the world knew exactly what had happened in this Le Paul earthquake. Again, that's absolutely not controversial. We knew what had happened, and what had happened mattered for him. It mattered for the way they were going to guide their humanitarian efforts uh, and how urgent it all was, and what the immediate outlook was for the future, but that channel of communication already existed is the important thing.
0: I'd love to get into that, but just to take us back to the meeting in Kathmandu. So, so what was the the messages? being given by the Nepalese geologists what what was the sort of substance of the discussion at that time and how how do you think that related to then the Nepalese government's response to the earthquake three weeks later?
2: I can't say anything about the Nepalese government's response to the earthquake that was not I wasn't really involved with it we were there specifically to share the experience of all these other countries like Kazakhstan, Iran, China and Italy. They varied in this consortium from places which were really very sophisticated scientifically from, like Italy and uh, China in terms of earthquake science and other places which weren't like, like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and so on and other places which surprisingly were more sophisticated than you might imagine. Iran, for example, had particularly good scientists who we'd worked with for decades. They're excellent people. They knew perfectly well what was going on. But all of them had the experience of how to try and communicate with public health, public safety officials about the science, how to actually get that across. And that was what we were sharing. The science itself was not controversial, but the agenda was actually to how, how to deal with this, especially in in Nepal, which is where the meeting was, which was being, the, the meeting was actually hosted by a Nepalese NGO. It was called the National Society for Earthquake Technology, NSET. It's rather famous. It's run entirely by Nepalese people. It's extremely effective and extremely impressive. But they nonetheless wanted to get the experience of all these other countries to see what, if there were tricks and so on, they could learn to actually improve the communication and the effect of what they were doing. And that was the basis of the consortium. It was very much focused on how do you turn scientific knowledge into increased public safety. And it turns out, funny enough, that in Nepal, the scientific knowledge was the least of it. It was probably one of the best understood countries in terms of the science in that whole belt from the Mediterranean to China. What was less clear was how to make use of it.
1: And actually, NSAT had a big part to play in reducing the damage that was experienced in the earthquake as well. James, was that your view?
2: Yes, but they, uh, and, indeed, they're an inspirational. Um, NGO I I recommend looking at. They had had programmes, for example, for reinforcing schools and by realising that in Nepal, 90% of the buildings in Nepal are built by the people who live in them. And therefore, what you've got to do is reach the village masons, not the kind of expensive engineered structures. You want to actually talk to people about how to make buildings which are made out of traditional materials like stone and wood in the mountains, how to make them safer. And they were extremely good and on the ball with all that kind of thing. But... They said afterwards what they got out of the involvement of this consortium, which went under the rather grand name of Earthquakes Without Frontiers, but it was really just a bunch of scientists from different countries talking to each other. What the Nepalese NGO got out of it was their increased credibility, being able to show to their Nepalese political and administrative colleagues that they were actually in touch with the international community and they were quite aware of the state of the art in terms of what you could and couldn't say about the hazard itself. Uh, that was their main benefit from that, and indeed, uh, that meeting was had, had that particular effect on them. So that afterwards, we had similar meetings in Tehran and Kazakh, in Iran and Kazakhstan, where the Nepalese went to those meetings because the Iranians and the Kazakhs said, "Okay, this is actually what really matters to us. We need our politicians to have more confidence that what we're saying to them is actually." how it is. That is the state of the art. It's not this, not our institute trying to get more money from the government. It's not some exotic one-off interpretation of what's going on. It is actually what is possible and what isn't possible.
0: So after the earthquake then, on the 25th of April, you said you were able to reassure Chris Whitty that there was a sort of a, quite a clear scientific consensus about what happened so what, what was that consensus and, yes. and how reassured was Chris?
2: Yes well I don't know how reassured he was but I, I can tell you what actually happened is that everyone was anticipating a repeat of the earthquake in 1934 which was a lot bigger and it killed 10,000 people and people had thought if there's a repeat of that given the increased population and the increased vulnerability of all the various lifelines and infrastructure probably 100,000 are going to get killed next time that's what everyone thought Now, what actually happened was the earthquake in 2015 was about half the size of that 1934 earthquake, and in geological terms, it did half the job. Earthquakes happen because rocks break and slide over each other, and the 1934 earthquake slid 10 metres from a depth of 20 kilometres to the surface. The one in 2015 slid half that amount, 5 metres, and stops 10 kilometres below the surface. So it was quite clear it has to finish the job sometime. Whether it finishes the job today, tomorrow, or 10 years' time, we're not able to say. But it, it was within a few days, as I say, half a dozen groups around the world were all in total agreement that it hadn't finished the job. And that was why the earthquake was smaller than everyone anticipated. That's why few, many fewer people died. But it was quite important to convey the message that this was a wake-up call. Right? The bit which is actually the most dangerous bit, which is the shallow part between 10 kilometres and the surface, which is right underneath Kathmandu, didn't move that much. But it's, it's a bit between Kathmandu and the Indian border. And when it does move, yes, there will be a lot more damage and landslides and, and breaking of communication routes and so on. And so it was really getting that across because after these big earthquakes, the tendency, not surprisingly, of, of the media and the public is to say, oh, the last one is 1934 and this one was 2015. Uh, it'll take them 10 years to recover. And it was important to say they haven't got 10 years to recover. That it'll maybe we'll finish the job tomorrow. And so actually you need to be on alert for what's going to happen. There are always big aftershocks. Indeed, there was a big aftershock in this case a week or two later, which did further damage. But actually finishing the job is a really serious hazard, a serious prospect, which you have to be prepared for. And and so what we were able to do with Chris Whitty was say, we can, to some extent, monitor this, because the job could be finished in a way which is dangerous or a way which is not dangerous. It could finish the job. It could slide up to the surface very, very gently, just like a a simple slow sliding to the surface, in which case there's no shaking, nothing would happen. Or it could finish the job in another big earthquake. And actually, by monitoring what's going on, we can tell the difference between those two things. Uh, And it wasn't just gently sliding. It remained locked, loaded, ready to go like a spring. And that we can actually tell by looking. And that remains the case today. And it will finish the job sometime.
1: But the fact that you're able to implement the, the monitoring plan and be able to do better next time in terms of getting the information is really down to having this project and the network already in place and having the consensus from the global community of scientists as well.
2: Yes. So although this project started in 2012, I must emphasize we've been working in these countries for decades and, and things come and go and there are periods of 10 years where you can't really go there, you can't do that much. But at the scientific level, and this is not just scientific, but this is essentially humanitarian. It's science for public safety. It goes under the political radar. We had perfectly good continuous relationships with the scientists in Iran all the way through that period. We were able to help them do things they couldn't do. They could help us by going into the field and seeing what was happening at the surface, which we couldn't do. And there was a relationship of trust which had built up over a very long time. And that's actually what made access to all these countries much easier right so although the british government really hadn't been concerned with famous big earthquakes in those countries you know the bam earthquake in 2003 in iran killed 30,000 people it wasn't really a british concern but nonetheless we had worked with that we had worked with the chinese on the wenchuan earthquake which killed 80,000 and so on all the way through here and and there was a considerable relationship of trust there right across that that consortium or partnership and that that is actually what allowed it to work
0: what are the kind of conditions that make that possible, that that build up that trust over time and, and keep that network alive? What do you, how do you account for that?
2: I think it's it's surprisingly easy to do. It doesn't involve very much money. It involves exchange of people coming backwards and forwards, students talking to each other, inviting people to meetings, going there on joint field trips. We had steadily over the years run little training courses and so on in these countries. It's really peanuts that's involved what what you need is as you say contact which builds up trust and there were several people in those countries who now run the geological surveys or the equivalent the people who have to talk to their ministers who were students in the UK or in Europe in France or Germany and so on these people we've known for a very long time and that is such an easy win But I'm just surprised it doesn't happen. And and here's another interesting aspect to this, because we were thinking in 2012 what to do, um, because you do need a certain amount of funding just to share expertise and to meet up and and go into the field and investigate these earthquakes together and so on. And we were quite wondering what to do. And it was an American colleague who said, look, there's no other country in the world that has contacts in all these countries between Italy and China and Mongolia and India. You can do things which, for example, the Americans simply can't do. They just can't go to these places. But we have contacts with all of them. Why don't you set up such a consortium to see what you can do to get scientific knowledge into increased public safety? It was an experiment. We weren't actually doing terribly much we weren't doing before, except that we did feel obliged to try and make contacts with these administrators and public officials and politicians that we perhaps didn't do so much before. We just had to be there and nod our heads. Well, they told each other what to do. It took all the sort of heat, you know, Iranian politicians listening, listening to Iranian geologists with people from all these other countries just sitting in the background nodding their heads in agreement. But actually it was extremely effective. One of the greatest frustrations of working in academia is that
1: you have these great research projects that end and yes. there, there's very little incentive to maintain them if, you know, it's it's about a network and, and an earthquake doesn't happen and we don't have an, another novel piece of research to, to publish, and I wonder, James, what we can do really as a community to harness that trust and network that you've talked about, the, these friendships and relationships that you build up, and to make sure that it doesn't fizzle out. and We then can, as a, as, a, as a collective, offer the right information at the right
2: time to the right people. I think that's a very important point because this was an experiment. No one quite knew how it was going to work. And the bit which worked extremely well was exactly that, being able to reinforce and help people in their own countries. And it was Strange when the thing ended because, in 2018, because the people who had really been in complete isolation before, all those countries in, in Soviet Central Asia, the former satellites of Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, K- Kyrgyzstan, so on, we worked in all of them. They were really not at all part of the international community before. They really weren't up to speed, to be honest, and I don't think they'd mind me saying this, you know, their level of understanding of earthquake science and how the world works was below our sort of first year undergraduate level. And by the end of this project, they were really up there. They knew who to talk to. They felt on a real crest of a wave, and we just had to drop them. Right, Because the, the thing came to an end because the money was provided through the research councils. And research councils are used to projects having a, a beginning, a goal and an end. And then you work, walk away and you do something else. You, know, you, you either measure something or you make a gizmo or you do something you're going to do. And the idea that what you've done is actually foster human relationships and increase the human ability to do things in those countries which doesn't need much to maintain it, but it needs something. It does need a continuity. No one really thought about that. And I think, actually, in a sense, it's rather irresponsible to walk away from it. If you're going to get involved in this way, you should take responsibility for doing that. You've raised people's expectations and capabilities and, indeed, desire to do stuff, right? And you've, you've made places which were not functional functional. And the truth is they do need people. They do need people who are a bit more experienced and a bit better connected than them to keep that going.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Um,
2: I mean, it, I find
0: this completely a sort of convincing argument you're making because of that importance of human relationships which take time to build and then can yield so much. But it is it is a challenge for research funding if you're used to sort of judging the quality of research in terms of the outputs, the, the papers, what's discovered. How do you have a third party kind of judge the quality of the relationship?
2: That's true. You, have, you, have, you do have to do that. But and, and we had perfectly amicable discussions with the research councils about this. And they could understand what we were saying. And I, I think they were sympathetic, but they just it just wasn't what they did. They had no experience, as you say, of how to assess the effectiveness of that or how to actually do it other than, you know, through competitive grant rounds and so on. And they just felt uncomfortable by it. I think we, what what had happened, there was this wish from the government. If you remember, it goes right back to when the government wanted to ring-fence the science budget and ring-fence the overseas development budget. And then they thought, well, OK, let's try and get one to do the other at some level, which is not a stupid thing to do. It just provides this aspect of responsibility, which we wasn't there before, that's all. And no one had thought about it no one quite knew what to do, and indeed nothing has happened since, right? But it's still the wish to in- include in scientific projects this sort of public good impact that goes with it, and it's not a silly thing to do, it's a, it's a sensible thing to do, but there isn't much understanding that it comes with responsibility, I think. Yeah,
0: I mean, sorry, Emily, you wanted to come in.
1: I was just uh, nodding and agreeing with James. I think the we all make contacts abroad, and there's a a definite push from from the research councils to involve countries developing countries especially where they they lack the uh, resources and the intellectual properties to help develop their the capacity but they they're very short sighted in the way the funding works but also in personnel so you know people go from place to place and and they they lose the contacts and and the list of contacts that are held by for example sage are not regularly updated, or they don't have a a key list of uh, stakeholders and people involved. And so it becomes a group that is through personal contacts. And I think that's, in my mind, given things like earthquake don't happen very often, is not very satisfactory in the fact that, that um, actually the science is changing and, and where we should be heading is a community where perhaps we meet more regularly and we have a established agenda where things are discussed, as James says, where people are able to discuss the state of the art and convince each other that what they're doing in their country and how they're progressing is something
2: to be proud of and uh, to be disseminated beyond their the borders, beyond their frontiers. Yeah, I mean, if I can add to that, I agree with you completely, But and, and there's another aspect to this, which is worth thinking about in this conversation. How come that the UK, which has no earthquakes, was central for this entire consortium going from Italy to China and so on, and you could do the, exactly the same conversation about volcanoes and tsunamis and so on, and actually, There's quite an advantage to not having these things in your own backyard. If there is, you are, as Emily will tell you, working for the USGS. You have to be, if you work in California, of course you are concerned with the San Andreas Fault and so on. It's in your backyard. It's a real responsibility to be focused on that. We are not. And when you look at those countries across that earthquake, belt in Asia, many of the people who are the leading scientists, earthquake scientists in those countries were trained by us or by our colleagues in France or Germany, or even in America. And that's why they're, they're well-connected, they're influential, and it's a very easy win for us to, to, to do more of that. Right? And we don't do it nearly well enough. The fringe benefits, as it were, the long-term soft power from training a few PhD students from these countries in the UK or in Europe is enormous. It's enormous. It really has long-lasting effects over decades. Uh, and that is what we as universities, I think, should try and do more of. Right. Well, uh, it's, it's where, I mean, it's, it's interesting coming. because,
0: I mean, there's one thing to fund and attract and bring in that mix of students. It's another then to, you know, nurture and continue the networks after they return. And obviously in this case, you know, you and your colleagues have managed to do do both those things, which I think is what makes it such a you know compelling case or example to explore some of these issues with. I wonder though, is in in the remaining few minutes, if we could then turn to, as it were, back to the question of of how governments then use this kind of insight and, and what is the Nepalese government supposed to do now, and what is the rest of the sort of world interested in Nepal supposed to do with this knowledge you're giving them, James, that to expect at some point between tomorrow and decades into the future, another quite substantial earthquake that could could be extremely damaging. First from your point of view, James, as a sort of earthquake geologist, and then perhaps from Emily's point of view, thinking about the sort of the engineering and the policy side what is the government supposed to do?
2: Well, there are many things you can do to mitigate the risk, to make people safer. And that's not really my expertise, but as Emily knows, that particular group in Nepal, N-SET, is absolutely inspirational in how to do this. And indeed, so much so that they were, the Chinese asked them to help them do similar things in China. Okay, So there's a whole... And those are all things to do with what is the correct response for people in that culture with those priorities in those cities and so on and so on. In terms of of the science, what you have to do is make it clear that the responsibility is not necessarily with the scientists for doing this. It is actually with the people who are concerned with with, with politics, public safety, administration and so on. Because if you don't do that, the tendency is for people to think it is a scientific problem and that, uh, and that they don't have to do anything. A classic illustration of this, if you actually get through and talk to uh, many of those countries in Central Asia, their capitals have been destroyed in the last couple of hundred years in big earthquakes. When you actually go and talk to the public officials, the mayor and so on of those cities, they will t- firstly look scared and then they'll say, well, we hope you can fix it, by which they mean we hope you'll tell us that the earthquake will be Friday lunchtime or something. And you can't do that, right? The public expectation, their expectation, is that one day you'll be able to predict when the earthquake is, and therefore, meanwhile, they don't have to do anything. And we cannot do that. So it's as important to say we cannot do that. We can give you some idea of what you're up against in terms of when there is an earthquake. It's likely to be this sort of earthquake. It's likely to be this big. It's likely to provide this kind of shaking. These are the places which are vulnerable. There are all sorts of things we can say other than precisely when. And actually, that is quite a hard message to get across. And so one of the things we did in Central Asia is bring people from Italy and China who had been through that experience. The Italians, if you remember, there was an earthquake there in 2009 in Central Italy. And essentially six seismologists were being sent to jail for failing to predict this earthquake. It got dressed up in other language. But the truth is the public were cross because these people hadn't told them when the earthquake was going to be. They hadn't said Tuesday's more dangerous than Wednesday or Thursday at that sort of level. And in the end, it all got squashed in appeal and so on. There was a big public international outcry. But taking those Italians to a country in Central Asia and saying to the mayor, look, this is what happened to us. And if you allow the public to believe this, you're going to get into this kind of trouble. And likewise in China, as Emily will tell you, until about 2008, the big earthquake in in Wenchuan, which killed 80,000 people, the Chinese policy on public safety was linked to efforts in short-term earthquake prediction. They thought one day they'll get there. Short-term earthquake prediction is part of the answer. They failed to get there. And they were big enough after 2008, our Chinese colleagues, to say that policy killed 80,000 people and taking them to Nepal to say, don't go this route. The correct policy is actually to increase public safety, not to sit back and think one day someone will find a silver bullet and t- which will tell you when it's going to be. That, that is a very powerful thing you can do with such a consortium.
0: Emily, I mean, this is closer to your area of research, how to mitigate in practice some of these risks. Maybe you could answer that. And then I've got a couple of follow ups.
1: Well, in Nepal, actually, the the 2015 earthquake acted as a booster to the program, the ANSEP program. And the government then committed a lot of money to a five year program where they build back better with training for 50 to 60,000 masons. James mentioned about them. The emphasis being on, on local Mason training and making sure that the, the, the building is of a, of a decent standard. And that's really been central to the success of this NGO because it's entirely owner driven. So rather than coming up with policies and things, building codes that most in a lot of these countries that are at risk, can't and can't afford to follow, but also don't have the the know-how to follow. They're using a program where they go to cope communities. They have the the teams to do that. And since 2015, it, the earthquakes has acted as a catalyst for for an acceleration of the program. So I think that is a success story in Nepal. But what I would say is that this often is case post-earthquake. And that's not good enough. And I think that's something that we all share the same sentiment is we shouldn't be waiting for the next earthquake to happen in order for, for governments to react and and decide to to do something. And I think exactly what James is saying about using examples from overseas to really project what could happen in certain countries is a very powerful
0: tool. Do you see anything, you know, that's analogous with the sort of networks James was talking about of seismologists, of people that are looking at the ways of changing building practices, changing other kinds of planning in order to reduce risk? I mean, that sort of world you're involved with, are there similar kind of international networks? And how how do you think about your involvement in those?
1: I mean, there, there are two particular ones that I think are relevant. The first is the global earthquake model, which set up some years ago to, to bring together engineers and seismologists to standardize the way we quantify uh, hazard and risk around the world so that we're all talking the same language. And that's still ongoing, but it's a very ambitious project. And I think what perhaps is difficult to manage is just getting people around the table and and, and sharing their experiences. I think to me, that's a much more powerful way of engagement to discuss the science being examined at the moment, the the challenges, and really just get all the issues and, and, and lessons learned on the table. Uh, the second is the World Housing Encyclopedia, which collates an online database of buildings around the world. And it goes back to my initial thoughts about having more access and more information on the exposure, the building inventory, especially the ones that are are vulnerable. And we're, we're getting to a point now where it's not just earthquakes, it's all the different hazards, the multi-hazards that we, we should be worried about. And actually having a, a gauge on what the projections of of damages would help focus the mind on how to spend the money.
0: I mean, I think it's been a very interesting conversation. So highlighting, I think, several things from that one incident of the calling of SAGE for the UK government in response to the Nepal earthquake in 2015. The importance of um, scientific networks, both in terms of connection to policymakers and who who is around the table, you know, as you were, Emily, in SAGE, and then as James was in, in conversation with Chris Whitty. But then, you know, the networks that you're drawing on that precede by decades, those conversations, and their networks of uh, students and colleagues, meetings, research projects. And I thought that it's, you know, a really fascinating case study of the different elements that are woven together to create those connections and relationships that can then be drawn on. And, and James's point about the sort of the cross assurance of the scientists and experts and policymakers from different countries hearing from each other and hearing being indor- the sort of endorsement and being a very important part of the role that those networks play. And it's interesting then as we think forward about, you know, how can the UK government strengthen its scientific advisory process is clearly what the message from this conversation is that you kind of have to start way earlier in investment and nurturing of the kind of the ecosystem and network of expertise, which can't be just thought of in terms of the UK, but is thought of internationally. And when you have that right, then then you've got the grounds for drawing effectively on the expertise. Of course, that doesn't solve the question about how do you draw on the expertise? How do you ensure it's the right expertise is marshalled at the right time in the right way and then acted on, but it's a sort of necessary precondition. Any final final thoughts either, James or Emily?
2: Well I think the difficulty I think for the people who want to run Sage, you know, the scientific advisors, is how to tell and then they get advice from all sorts of directions how to tell what's any good and what isn't right <laughs> and they haven't got time I mean generally the scientific advisors in, in, in the ministries of state are really busy you know they're being rushed off their foot from one urgent maybe emergency to another they haven't got the time or ability to actually say whether their advice they're getting is sensible or not And Emily will say it, will tell you, I agree, I think, that very often, you know, there's conflicting advice or advice which isn't the consensus. So actually, what you, I think, have to do is get involved the people who advise the advisers. They're the people who, in principle, have the time to sit back, as Emily is saying, Okay, well, supposing we do have to deal another time with, I don't know, anything, foot and mouth, hurricanes, tidal waves... How do we get together, a group together, and just see what, it, what is understood, what isn't? You know, what's controversial, what isn't? And then you have some idea of who to go to. But generally, those people are equally busy chasing after the scientific advisor. So I think that is, that that's, the, that's the difficulty of the political estate, is that they're all terribly busy. And ideally, you'd have a bunch of people in the background advising the advisors who have the time to find out these things. And maybe that's the way to go, actually but probably not the way to go reproducing it in every ministry there is, but some sort of more central government office of science could perhaps think about that. Well,
0: I mean, in, in, in many ways, I know that is part of the remit of the government office for science. And maybe one thing we'll see is that sort of increased role of the government office for science and the increased recognition of the value it has for, for government as a whole. So um, I guess that might be one legacy of the, difficulty of COVID. But thank you for those thoughts, James. And thank you so much, Emily, as well. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yes, thank you.
2: I've enjoyed talking to you.
0: This series on science advice and government is brought to you in partnership with Expertise Under Pressure, part of the Centre for Humanities and Social Change at Cambridge. To hear more conversations like this, make sure to follow and subscribe on your podcast provider. You can also follow us on Twitter at CSiPolk. If you'd like to send feedback, which we'd love, or have ideas for future episodes, please email us at inquiries at csap.cam.ac.uk. Thanks to our producer, Jessica Foster, and researcher, Nick Kostick, and to you for listening.